In the 1990s, Tracy, Tammy, Victoria, and Mary were murdered, and their bodies were found in the Hemlock Valley area of British Columbia, Canada. This is clearly the work of a serial killer, but why haven't they been caught and are they still roaming free killing to this day? Hi, hello, what is up and welcome or welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard, the podcast where we discuss true crime and black Canadian history from a critical decolonial perspective, but above all else without all the unnecessary propaganda that others love to include, but we hate to listen to. I just want to say that when doing research, many resources listed the victim's vulnerabilities as drug addiction and survival sex work. And for the rest of the episode, I'm just going to be calling it SW or SWs or SWing, uh, just so that nothing gets blocked or censored. They listed it as a vulnerability, though, and I wholeheartedly disagree with this classification. When people are labeled vulnerable by public or governmental figures, it really means that they aren't being properly protected. It doesn't address why the so-called vulnerability exists. It's just another way of victim blaming, victim shaming, putting the onus on the women who were murdered, insinuating that they somehow brought it upon themselves. I think that this is especially problematic when you look at the number of SWs who went missing during the same time frame. It's clear that these women were all being literally hunted, and yet no extra efforts or accommodations or measures were put in place to protect them. All of the victims of these murders were living in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, more specifically the downtown east side, otherwise known as East Hastings. This area is unfortunately typically described as a hotspot for drugs, SW, and houselessness. Yet, those same people who describe it as such fail to mention why the area has become known for that. They don't address why the government, who is supposed to help, turns a blind eye on the root causes of these issues, shifts responsibility onto the individuals, rather than acknowledging the systemic failures or shortcomings or obstacles that are placed in these people's way. Those who live in the area, however, make it clear that it is very community-oriented. Everyone knows one another, everyone looks out for one another, and they take care of one another to the best of their abilities. East Hastings is one of the, if not the most heavily populated area of houselessness in Canada. It is just a Vancouver street where houseless folks live, oftentimes due to the warm weather on the coast rather than the harsh winters that are faced anywhere else in Canada. A lot of shelters, nonprofit organizations, and food banks are located on this street as a way to cater directly to the community. Unfortunately, this makes it quite easy for folks to be attacked, targeted, and often murdered. And their deaths will often go unsolved and uncared for by the authorities who are supposedly protecting them. For example, this is the area where prolific serial killer Robert Picton would target his victims and get them from. For those who don't know, Picton is a prolific Vancouver area serial killer who would abduct, assault, murder, and then feed his victims' corpses to his farm animals, specifically his pigs. He would purposely target Black and Indigenous SWs women who were battling addiction because he knew that there would not be much effort or care by authorities to locate them or figure out what happened to them. He also knew this because many of the police and high-ranking politicians or other officials were taking these women there themselves and participating in the same acts as Picton himself. But Picton was just more or less the fall guy for everybody. Many murders and abductions were lazily placed upon Picton as a way for police to make sure that they wouldn't have to investigate further. And for a long time, that is what they tried to do with the Hemlock Valley murders. Vancouver and its surrounding areas were and still are considered a hotspot for abductions and murders of Black and Indigenous women. 
In Canada, statistics regarding Black women and girls who have been murdered or have gone missing are not available. Race-based statistics regarding Black people in general are not required in Canada, so it's hard to come across them or give an accurate number or idea as to the number of Black women or girls who are targeted in this way or who have gone missing in this area. But two-spirit folk, Indigenous women and girls make up the largest number of abductions and murders of any racial group in Canada, despite only accounting for about 5% of the country's total population. Black people account for about 4.1% of Canada's population, and we face many similar systemic and racial issues as Indigenous people, so in my opinion, it would be safe to assume that the rate of murders and abductions would be similar when comparing the two populations. All of the victims of the Hemlock Valley serial killer are women who worked, lived, and frequented Vancouver's east side. Tracy was Black, Tammy and Mary were Indigenous, and Victoria was white, so the majority of these women were minorities. They were all involved in SW in some capacity. They all had a history battling drug addiction. None of the women were reported missing prior to their bodies being found. Now, I just want to make it clear, this does not necessarily indicate that their families weren't looking for them or didn't go to the police and report, but it's likely that the police did not take the reports seriously and just ignored them overall because of their history with their careers and with their addiction. Tracy Olajide was born on March 3rd, 1965 to parents Olive and Michael. The family was originally from Liverpool, England, and then decided to relocate to the Vancouver suburb of Richmond. A few years later, the family would relocate once again to East Vancouver after Olive and Michael got a divorce. Olive became the primary caregiver, being a single mother, and Michael went on to open a boxing gym nearby where he would spend a lot of his time. Tracy's brother would actually train at this gym and he would eventually go on to become a boxing champion. Tracy was known as being a very funny person who was always getting a laugh out of herself and others around her. She was known amongst her schoolmates as someone who would always stand up for them need be, so definitely looking out for others was just in her nature. She was also an extremely good athlete, like her brother, and she actually had a passion for singing. As she got a little bit older, Tracy recreationally used drugs until eventually being introduced to crack cocaine and developing an addiction to it. Her father described her as a beautiful person with beautiful energy who simply had the wrong people that managed to get into her atmosphere and lead her life off of its path. In 1988, Tracy gave birth to a son whom she loved a lot, like so very much. Unfortunately, her addiction only deepened after her son was born. She needed to find a way to support her usage, so she moved to the downtown east side where she started to participate in Survival SW. She became known in the area and was extremely well-liked amongst her community. Basically, anyone who met her just really, really got along with her, and she just had a really good energy. She lived with two fellow women who were also SWs. Um, one of the women she lived with was Vicky Black, and she was unfortunately murdered in 1993, and it would take 27 years to solve her case. In the years leading up to Tracy's death, she continued to buy drugs to support her habit on the street, but she was kind of phasing out of SW altogether, according to her family, but according to police, it, they just say that she was no longer working on the streets. It's a very vague statement, doesn't clarify what that means, but her family has made it very clear that she was phasing out of SW. By early 1990. Tracy was doing everything that she could to overcome her addiction. Her plan was to get clean, get her life just totally back on track, and move in with her mother who had full custody of her son. In order to spend more time around her family, she wanted to move in with them. She loved them very deeply and they loved her right back, so they were kind of supporting her in this endeavor to get clean. On August 10th, 1995, Tracy was spotted alone in the general area of the Waldorf Hotel. 
Police assumed that she was going to meet with a client, a dealer, but based on her family saying that she was slowly phasing out of both SW and her addiction, I don't know how accurate this is, but this unfortunately would be the last time that Tracy was seen alive. On August 12th, 1995, at 33 years old, Tracy's body was found on a trail near Agassiz, British Columbia, making her one of the first of four women to be found in the same area over the next few years. She was found naked near a Morris Valley logging road. She was found in a desolate area that you would have to know quite well in order to leave her where she was found. She did not die in the area where she was found, but she was transported there post-mortem. She, like all of the other victims, was found in an area which was hidden enough not to be seen when leaving the body there, but it was also in the open enough to where extra measures weren't taken to hide the body. The killer wanted her to be found. There was clear evidence of sexual assault. Her cause of death was strangulation. There were no witnesses, no one to identify a suspect, and no one to provide any useful information when it came to solving the case or providing answers for her grieving family. Police said that Tracy was an active drug user at the time of her disappearance, but did not clarify as to whether drugs were found in her system or not. But this statement also completely goes against what friends and family who have actively spoken out and were saying that Tracy was getting clean and sober. Her community mourned this loss very deeply, and I'm sure her family is still mourning to this day. But what was unknown to community at this time is that Tracy would be the first discovered in what would later be deemed the Hemlock Valley murders based on the locations in which their bodies were found. Tammy Lee Pipe was born on June 20th, 1971. Her father's name was Jim Pipe and they were quite close. Her family lived in areas around Vancouver but not directly in Vancouver for most of her life. There unfortunately was not a lot of information available about Tammy's early life, but her aunt, Linda Pipe, did say that Tammy had stopped seeing the family for a while prior to her death. Tammy frequented the same East Hastings area as Tracy, but she was known for being very charitable and she would help others whenever and wherever she could. She would donate money, clothing to others, food, if they were in need at literally any time. She was very, very kind-hearted and, again, very well-liked amongst her peers. Tammy had dreams of becoming a professional dancer, but her cocaine addiction made that somewhat difficult. So she became an interpretive dancer and then an exotic dancer. On August 29, 1995, in the late afternoon, Tammy was last seen at the Cobalt Hotel on Main Street. She was staying there prior to her death. That's where she was living, so she had prepaid her rent. She paid her rent in advance, basically. This would unfortunately be the last time that she was seen alive. On September 2nd, 1995, at 24 years old, Tammy's body was found. Only two weeks after Tracy was found. She was found naked in the middle of a desolate side road just north of Highway Number 7. She was only five miles away from where Tracy was found. She was found in the same state as Tracy as well. She was sexually assaulted and then murdered. Tammy was also left naked and uncovered in an area where the murderer knew that her body would be found, but also knew that he wouldn't be caught dumping her there. At this point, it became extremely clear that the killer could navigate the space super well, like they had to have known it very well. After Tammy's body was found, debates were sparked about the effectiveness of police and the justice system overall. These are all conversations that we're still having today, as policing and the justice system in general are just not effective, especially when it comes to marginalized or quote-unquote vulnerable individuals or vulnerable populations. And this is especially true as it pertains to Black and Indigenous women who are in the SW industry and those who have addictions. 
On January 7, 1960, Victoria was born to parents Blanche and Keith. Victoria grew up with four brothers and a sister in Victoria, BC, so just had like a very large family. Close family and friends would describe that Victoria growing up was a social butterfly who just absolutely loved to have fun. She loved music and she loved people. She was just a typical teenager who would enjoy doing all of the teenage things and having all of the teenage fun. When Victoria turned 27, she became a mother and her son became the most important thing in her life. She had an extremely loving relationship with all of her family members, but was especially close with her son. At some point, it's unclear when, Victoria started to have health issues. She was prescribed medication, which led into addiction and eventually led into SW. Her sister notes that she eventually began working in Victoria, but went to Vancouver because she knew that she was able to make more money there. Victoria lived and worked in the East Hastings area while actively battling her addiction, like the other two women mentioned before. Once she moved into the area, though, she changed her name and she went by Nicole Jean Johnson. On September 11th, 1995, Victoria was seen at the Social Assistance Office on Hastings. This would unfortunately be the last time that Victoria was seen alive. The exact date of her disappearance is unclear. But on October 21st, 1995, Victoria's body was found. Due to the state of decomposition, authorities believe that she had died at least 30 days prior to being found. She, like the others, was left naked and uncovered in a wooded area. She had been sexually assaulted prior to her death, and then she was strangled to death. Like the others, Victoria was found in a desolate area off of Highway Number 7, but this time it was near Mission, B.C. However, the others were found closer to Agassiz, but still along the same highway. It's clear that at this point, the killer felt the need to change his location slightly, but not too much. For Mary, it is unclear if she is a victim of the Hemlock Valley serial killer, but I personally believe that she is based off of the available information and the patterns the killer exhibited with each victim. So Mary was an indigenous woman who was approximately 30 years old at the time of her death. Unfortunately, not very much is publicly known about her, but it is known that at around the time she disappeared, she lived, was a part of Survival SW in some capacity, and she also purchased drugs on Vancouver's east side. She was last seen alive in July of 1995 in the East Hastings area. Not clear where exactly, what she was doing, or if she was seen anyone, none of that information is available. Mary's body was found in August of 1996, but her remains were not identified until 1997. It took over a year after her disappearance to find her and another year after that to identify her. She was also found in the same general area as Tracy, Tammy, and Victoria. Because she was found about a year after she had died, her body had been exposed to the elements, wildlife, and things of that nature, so decomposition had deeply set in. Her exact cause of death remains unknown again due to the decomposition. It can be assumed that Mary was murdered in the same way as the others as she fits the criteria that I mentioned prior. Like the Hemlock Valley, serial killer was testing the waters with her death, seeing if they would get caught, if anyone would notice. If authorities had been paying attention and found Mary earlier, it's very possible that the other women would have still been alive. Mary is the last to be discussed because she was the last to be found, but she was the first to be murdered. So there is not a whole lot of information that was put together and put out there by the authorities about the potential suspect. 
the vehicle and other elements that I'm about to describe may no longer be applicable to what the perpetrator owns currently, but we're going to continue because this is all the information that is out there. So because no attempts were made to conceal or hide their bodies, aside from the desolate locations in which they were all dropped off, it's believed that the perpetrator both lived and worked in the area. Possible careers were a hunter, logger, roofer, or fisherman, but I also believe that it very well could have been a policeman because or an RCMP officer, because they would have been able to navigate the area just as well as these other people. Apparently, the vehicle belonging to the perpetrator used during this time was a red 4x4 truck or some sort of big vehicle. This was thought to be the case because of red paint flecks that were found near Tammy's body. It would have had to have been a 4x4 or a comparable vehicle to have been able to navigate the overall tough terrain. Again, it has been over 20 years, so it's unclear if this vehicle could even be found at this point, could even be recovered, it could very well be scrapped, like, just don't know. Based on evidence left at the scene, it is also presumed that all of the bodies were wrapped in weather waterproof yellow rain gear. But they were unsure of the source or the brand. They don't know the year it was purchased, where it was purchased, and it doesn't specify whether it was a tarp of some kind or like a jacket. It's just very vague information. It's likely that this material was used to cover, wrap, or hide the bodies during transportation, but then removed and pulled off. But all of this information further hits home the police's narrative that the killer was an outdoor worker of some sort, because why else would they have something like this? But also, like, Vancouver is a very rainy area, so this information was not super helpful. There were notes that zap straps were used at some point during the murders. To what extent is unclear? If I'm being honest, when I was researching this case, I had no idea what a zap strap was. I thought it was something that was used to like torture or electrocute the women prior to their deaths, but I was wrong. A zap strap is just basically a very heavy duty zip tie that is used for heavy outdoor construction work, whereas zip ties are for like light indoor work. Again, the context in which these zap straps were used is not mentioned, just saying that they were in fact used. There were two suspects in the case, Robert Picton and a local logger who had previously been charged with rape. Once the police cleared those two, the media didn't really care that much about this case and the police didn't really care to solve the case any further. Again, showing that police are completely ineffective in solving crimes, but also ineffective in preventing them in the first place. This point is especially true because the DNA evidence of the serial killer has been in police possession for over 20 years at this point. No match has been found and it has not been made clear if they are continually trying to match the DNA to anyone. In 2011, police had Alberta RCMP interview someone who they suspected to be the killer, but nothing came out of that. And it's really the last time that they publicly addressed this case at all. Victoria's sister, Kathy, said that when Picton's farm was raided in 2002, they thought that there would be some evidence to tie him to the death of her sister, but also the other victims as well, and that just wasn't the case. And she said in this interview with CTV that a serial killer is still out there. I couldn't find any information or ways to contact the family directly with any tips or information that you might have or you might come into knowledge of so you can call this number and leave an anonymous tip if you do know something the number is 1-800-222-8477 and you can find that in the description as well so we have come to the part of the episode where i just discuss my final thoughts 
So first and foremost, I just want to say it really is disgusting to me the way that media talks about drug addiction and SW in a general context, but especially in contexts like this where women have died and they were targeted by serial killers. Based on the articles that were written in 1995 to 1996, some of the newer interviews or articles or things like that written about this case, they have gotten better, but not by much. There's a lot of victim blaming and shaming rather than understanding. I found it extremely dehumanizing that the only things these articles wanted to do was extensively discuss these women's participation in SW and their addictions rather than the fact that they were murdered and targeted or literally anything else about them. There's nothing at all that these women did to deserve their fate, but the media makes it seem as such. The fact that the police have had DNA evidence in their possession longer than I have literally been alive makes me question why there's no matches. It really makes me look at, I'm, I mean, I'm always looking at the police sideways, but especially in this case, it makes me wonder if they're doing anything to actually solve these murders or possibly if one of them is responsible and that's why there's no real urgency. Sex workers and black and indigenous women are often not seen as valuable by police in life or in death. And that's just really disheartening. They only care to solve cases where there is consistent public pressure and lots of it being applied. Otherwise they don't really care. The fact that this man was able to stalk these women and target them and likely kidnapped or abduct, abduct them and there's no video footage from anywhere there, it just doesn't seem right. Like it doesn't make sense at all. I do think that everybody should take the time to educate themselves on SW and those who have devalued these women in the past should stop doing so. Like Tracy, Tammy, Victoria, Mary, and other SWs or those battling addiction do not deserve to be devalued in any way because of those things. It says far more about those individuals than it will ever say about SWs or those who are battling that disease of addiction. It is also disgusting and it makes you a horrible person for judging them. Tracy, Tammy, Victoria, and Mary, I'm sure were all absolutely lovely women with amazing personalities, loving family, big hearts, and genuine interests aside from their means of survival and their addiction. This should not be forgotten when discussing the horrendous circumstances surrounding their deaths.